were here uh, a week ago, considering the, the first part of the chapter where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, seeking to show them the full extent of his love. And tonight we come to uh, a text where I'm going to be basically dealing with from verses 18 through to uh, 30. Uh, 35, as we think through Jesus, Jesus showing the full extent of his love for all of his disciples, uh, even Judas. So let's pray before we read God's word and let's ask for his help in understanding it. Father, we thank you indeed that your word does give light to the eyes and makes wise the simple. That it truly is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Let it penetrate deep into our very hearts tonight, Lord. Convicting us of sin, that we may repent and turn to you in faith. And indeed, strengthening us with a greater knowledge of who you are and so increase our worship of you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me read actually from verse 12 of John chapter 13. So Jesus just washed his disciples' feet. And verse 12 reads like this. When he, Jesus, had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares, his, shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. 
since Judas had charge of the money. Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And let's end our reading there. Many of us will know all too well that Judas is not some distant historical figure in the past, but a very present reality today. Some of us know what it is to be betrayed, to pour your life into someone else's, to give to someone else that of your friendship and in love and investing time and energy and sometimes money You're all into a relationship believing that you are building something good. And that the feeling is entirely mutual and that the love that you are showing and the investment you are making is being reciprocated and reciprocated gladly. But only to come face to face with the reality that the other person was actually only ever in it for themselves. Not loving you, but using you, betraying your confidence, betraying your love, betraying you. How are we supposed to respond to situations like that? What are Christians supposed to do in that regard? What do we do with those who betray us? I mean, do we just, do, can we go and wring their necks? Are we allowed to hate them and detest them? How should we respond? How do we avoid making mistakes and so, even in our anger, sinning? And in our offense, doing that which is not pleasing to God at all? Maybe some of you are aware of many words of Jesus. Some of you here are even less familiar with the words of Jesus that we have in Scripture are still familiar with some of the most, the most famous words and phrases that he came away with, like, love one another, and love your enemies, even. How do we do that? <laughs> what does this actually look like for us? Well, I think this is what we get to see in this text tonight. I think we get to see something of the love of Jesus on display. And so we see the very character of God on display. For Jesus himself is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Who came into the world to make God known to us. We see his love. 
We see what this looks like, even in the face of grave and serious betrayal. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage just in, uh, in two parts, really, in verses 18 to 30, first of all, to actually just grasp something of the love of Jesus for his disciples, for all of his disciples, okay? And then a smaller section of our sermon, so this will be heavily front end, okay? So don't be panicking that we get to, you know, half past and we're still in the first point. Um, the, the love command is brought out uh, a number of times again in chapter 14, so we will deal sufficiently with it then. But the first point, 18 to 30, the love of Jesus for his disciples. And in verses 31 to 35, Jesus command the love of disciples for one another. So number one, the love of Jesus for his disciples. Let's remember, Jesus is in this upper room on the night before his crucifixion. And John has told us what Jesus has been doing with his closest disciples right at the, right at the start of chapter 13. And this, that, that right at the start of this section of chapter 13 through to the end of 17. What is he showing them? Do you remember what he said? John 13, 1. He is showing them the full extent of his, his love. And the first way he loves them is by showing them that in humility he's willing to lay down everything. His status, even his life. To serve them and make them clean. And then the second way he loves them is actually by preparing them for some pain that is to come. This is all about equipping these disciples for for coping with this crucifixion event and indeed for life beyond this crucifixion event. And the first thing he does in this little section is that he shows his love for his disciples by preparing them for this pain to come. Look with me, verse 17. Jesus has just given them a lesson in love and in humble servanthood and says to them, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do these things. You'll be blessed if you serve one another. Knowing this and letting this servant attitude, this humility, take hold of your heart and impact your life. If you do that, this is going to bless you. And then comes the shocker in verse 18. I am not referring to all of you. Talk about a conversation stopper. (laughs) Not all of you will be blessed if you do these things. No, it would be a mistake to think that you will be blessed if you do what I have done without receiving me, Jesus could have said. And this is true of one of these twelve. All twelve have been on the receiving end of Jesus' love. But it seems only eleven have truly received Jesus. And one of them has not received Jesus, truly. But Jesus leaves them. He doesn't exactly tell them about his betrayal straight away, does he? He just, it, it's slightly mysterious in some sense. But Jesus just goes on to tell them that he knows about this. Verse 18, I know, I know those I have chosen. And you might pause and say, well, what, what's going on here? Before Jesus tells them more, he first tells them this. Whatever I'm about to tell you is no surprise to me. What I'm about to tell you about, I know about full and well. This is no error on my part. I have not unwittingly chosen a bad egg only to discover that it was off when I cracked it. No. Verse 18 again. I know those I have chosen. 
But this to fulfill the scripture. He who shares his bread has lifted up his heel against me. See Jesus warning them here. He's doing this in love. Why would he do that though? Why? Well unless he had in some way prepared the disciples really for what was about to happen. It could have actually had a very serious and an adverse effect on them. If Judas had suddenly, without warning, betrayed Jesus, then the disciples may have concluded that actually Jesus was not all that he claimed to be. Otherwise he would have known that Judas was like this, and surely Jesus would never have chosen Judas if he knew he was like this. I think this is why Jesus says what he says. If we look at verse 19 for a further explanation, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Actually, he isn't in the original Greek. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am. The very name of God he is claiming for himself here. I'm telling you this now. So that when it happens, it will be a further evidence for you that I am God in the flesh. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I did not choose the betrayer out of ignorance. I chose him in order to fulfill scripture and to show you that I am God's. That's what Psalm 41 said, wasn't it? Even my close friend whom I trusted. He who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. There are many different scriptures from the Old Testament which make reference to the the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Even Zechariah 11 gives us the exact price that Judas would be paid for his treachery. 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is underlying, he's showing them his love in this by preparing them for the pain and the impact of this betrayal. I hate going to the dentist, okay? Not many people really, I'm sure nobody really likes going to the dentist. But I tell you something, I like a good dentist because there are some bad dentists. Now, I quite like it whenever I'm in the chair And the dentist actually says, as I'm lying there, he comes and kind of shows me a needle and says, okay, you might feel a scratch now. You know, if if a dentist comes and says that to me, what can I do? I can prepare myself for it, okay? I don't like it when pain comes and you weren't expecting that. You know, how are you doing? Have you had any holidays today? Wow! You know the needle's in your mouth and you didn't even know about it. When you're prepared for a bit of pain that's coming, You can deal with it a bit better, can't you? When we're ready for this pain, when his disciples are being readied here for this betrayal, the pain of this betrayal, because it would impact on them as well. They have shared their lives. Their life has intertwined with Judas. One of them actually went out with Judas when Jesus sent out his disciples two by two to go and proclaim the gospel and even bring about healing to people. How would that other disciple have felt? What? But Judas, I mean, I, 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 sat, I sat there under that tree and I heard him talk about Jesus. I heard him talk about the Messiah King who was promised from of old. He quoted scripture. This Jesus is preparing them for. 
I chose to teach you that I am God and I am working out this, even to the finest detail of my perfect plan, he is essentially saying here. And it's his encouragement for them to, to say to them, to be prepared for this betrayal when it comes so that this betrayal will not capsize the church or sink the mission of the gospel before it's even truly set sail. What a lesson there is for us even in knowing Jesus' sovereignty over every minute of our lives. We should not let our Christian walk or our Christian witness be rocked by betrayal or hindered by the kind of opposition that we see here or of some other form or or even halted by some revelation about another person in the church. It's possible, you know. We know it. Some of you uh, who have been members of the church for a long while know exactly what this is like. We all know fine and well that hypocrisy still exists in the church. There are still, as it were, tears among the wheat. They look identical. But none of that should distract us at all from proclaiming and indeed living out the gospel. And I think this is what Jesus' point is when he said, go on, goes on in verse 20 to say, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. At first reading you think, what? Why? Why, is, what are, you, why are you saying that? You could have just missed that out and gone straight on. It would have made sense. Why, why are you stopping to say this? Well, I think Jesus is stopping to say this in order to say the impact of this betrayal on you, my band of disciples, you 11, will not undermine your witness. It will not undermine who you are called to be by my grace. You will, people will accept you. And in accepting you, they will accept me. So Jesus is preparing them so that they will not be rocked by this betrayal but that they will be stabilized. They will stand strong with one another and continue on knowing that indeed this gospel is going to bear fruit. He is demonstrating his love for his disciples, preparing them for these revelations and strengthening them before it even happens. Such is his great love. But we see a love that is truly blows our mind as the passage continues. As Jesus talks about and reveals, indeed, his betrayer. And what I want us to see in this little bit is that Jesus loves Judas despite what he knows about him. He has loved him. I mean, it's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, listen to this. Jesus' love for his betrayer must have been indistinguishable from his love for his other disciples. Have you thought about that? Despite knowing what he knew, I think it's safe to say that Jesus treated Judas no differently. He didn't pick on him or keep him at a distance for three years until the appointed time and then start to bring him a little bit closer. No, I think Jesus' love for his betrayer was indistinguishable from his love for his other disciples. How do we know that? Well, look with me at verses 21 to 22. When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. They didn't know who Jesus was referring to. Verse 22, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. Even verse 24, Simon Peter motioning to John saying, ask him which one he means. 
And then even in verse 28, when Jesus told Judas to leave, saying, what you're about to do, go and do quickly, they, the disciples still thought that he was away to give some money to the poor or buy something for the feast. Jesus' love for Judas was indistinguishable to his love for the rest. Because if he had ever treated Judas any differently from the way he treated the other disciples, if he had been more distant, if he had shown some resentment in some form, then they would have known immediately who was the betrayer when Jesus said, oh, one of you is going to betray me. Ah, oh, Judas! You can imagine it. But there's nothing of that. There's nothing of that. Evidently, for three years, Jesus had been gentle and loving and kind to Judas, treating him in exactly the same manner he treated the other eleven. To the extent that they thought of him as one of their group, no one suspected Judas. I think one of the sad things about this is that it also tells us that Judas, the life he was living, was indistinguishable in his behavior from the rest of the group. Sure, John's Gospel has told us earlier that he was already stealing from the money bag, but it seems that he hid his hypocrisy, his true unbelieving heart, so very, very well. And despite all of that, Jesus still continued to love him, even on this night before his death. Even in these final, final minutes, Jesus loved Judas enough, get this, to actually give him one of the places of honor at this feast. So don't think about that famous painting of the Last Supper, that big long table. It didn't look like that. It was in a horseshoe shape. Jesus would have been at the head. And we know John was on Jesus' right because verse 25 tells us that John was leaning back on Jesus when he asked him, Lord, who is it? And they had this horseshoe-shaped table, Jesus at the, the head of the U. And they would recline on their left elbow with their feet away from the table. They would use their right hand to eat. John, lying there, leans back on Jesus' chest. Lord, who is it? Which means that Judas, in order to receive the piece of bread from Jesus, must have been either on his immediate left or one either side. Not only did Judas, was Judas loved by the fact that he had a place of honor at the feast, he was given a gesture of honor in the bread being passed to him. It was a, it was a kind thing to do. It was a respectful thing to do for a host to take a piece of bread, dip it in one of the dishes, and give it to someone at the feast. Can't help but think even to the very last, Jesus reaches out to the lost with his love, even, well, either to their salvation or their judgment. And you would have thought that such love would have melted Judas' heart, wouldn't you? But no. Instead of urging him towards repentance, it seemed instead to harden his resolve and what we see is quite simply that Judas spurned Jesus' love despite what he receives from Jesus when Judas was one who was happy to receive from the hand of Jesus yet refused to receive Jesus himself he was so 
thoroughly unwilling to receive Jesus and so ready, in fact, to betray Jesus that verse 27 tells us that even Satan was able to enter him. Now, these kind of things raise lots of questions, don't they? This situation with Judas and Jesus' choice of Judas. And I don't want us to make the mistake of pairing God's sovereignty with Judas's sin in this situation. Some people think, well, that's a real shame for Judas. Indeed, even Lady Gaga has just had a song out recently which talks about her compassion and her love for a person like Judas. But there's no room for an, oh, poor Judas in this scenario. Because we know fine and well that Satan does not take innocent people captive. Indeed, there are no innocent people. Satan has power where sinful passions hold sway, says John Piper. Judas was a lover of money and probably prestige, but he covered it with a phony external relationship with Jesus. And when things didn't go the way he wanted them to go, when he didn't get what he was using Jesus to get, he resolved to sell him and betray him for four months' wages. And still, the other disciples did not know that he would be the betrayer and that he would spurn the love that Jesus was showing. I think there is a warning here, in here for us, who think that, that we can do the same. People who come along to church and who take part in church life in many respects, participating in this so-called fellowship of believers, and yet refuse to receive Jesus himself. They enjoy the taste of what it means to be amongst a bunch of friendly people finding real community in a place like this where they are perhaps not finding it in other places. There are many reasons why people can find it quite a nice thing to go to a church and be a part of the church, even to stand up and sing the songs and amen the prayers and all that kind of stuff, but never really put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, it's a dangerous thing to do because it can harden your resolve to be against him and not receive him. The whole situation with Judas reminds me of uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. You should read it if you haven't read it. I try and read it every couple of years. Uh, I still remember the thing that struck me most. (laughs) The first time I ever read it was the way it ended. It looked like I would get the happy ending I was looking for, following this man called Christian all the way through his various trials and the slough of despond, all these different places. And Christian then coming, standing in awe at the very gates of heaven. He made it there. He was ready to enter in. And it was a glorious sight. And that's where I expected the book to end. But it doesn't actually end there. It ends instead by focusing on a man called ignorance. Ignorance also made it to the gate of heaven. But Bunyan tells us in his book that he had scrambled his way there with the help of one called Vain Hope. And what you see in in that final image is ignorance within touching distance of heaven. And you hear him talk about the, the activity that he has had in the presence of the king, that's Jesus. 
but that when he was checked over, he lacked the credentials of genuine faith. And as a result, he was bound and he was taken away. And Bunyan ends his book with these somber words. Then I saw there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. Then I saw there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. And I think Judas teaches us the very same lesson and offers us tonight even the very same warning because this somber warning is issued again and again from pages of scripture where we are told don't think for a second that religious formalism putting on a show doing religiousy things that religious practice and church attendance And good deeds and talking about Jesus, even telling other people about Jesus, are sufficient to save your soul. If you receive from Jesus but don't receive Jesus himself, you're like Judas who had the behavior of a saint. But an unforgiven heart like that of a real sinner. And the passionate plea, I believe, comes To us again, that passionate plea of Jesus from John chapter 12, that last public appeal to people before he goes into this upper room, spending time equipping his disciples. It struck me that as Jesus said these words in John 12, Judas would have heard them. You are going to have the light just a little while longer, Jesus said. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. And Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. What did Judas do with these words? John 13, 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread... He went out and it was night. It's not just telling you that it's dark outside. No, it's dark in Judas. He has walked out of the presence of the light of the world and into a forever darkness. Sure, he would return one time to offer a kiss. But that night, he left the company of Jesus forever. Please, if you're here tonight, and you know in your heart that you have not truly received Jesus himself, following him, please walk in the light while you have the light. Walk now, choose him while you have the opportunity indeed to do so. Put your trust in him, in his shed blood, in the death he died in your place to save you on that coming day of wrath, believe in him now. And see even how great his love is, extended to the worst of sinners. He strengthens weak and fretful followers, such as his great love. He loves his enemies with a love indistinguishable from the love he has for his friends a love based 
not on performance of the other, but based solely and completely on him and on his character. God is love, truly. He is the one in whom you should trust. And I close with this little word from the second point for the church hearing this message. True believers, this is a call for us again to be freshly amazed at this love and to learn what this love is like so that we may imitate him, our great saviour. Because what he goes on to call us to do as the church, what he goes on to call the 11 to do, and what he goes on to call all who will follow after them in faith and repentance to do, is to love just like Jesus. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. When he was gone, verse 31 says, meaning Judas' departure, setting the machinery of redemption into its highest gear. The cross is coming, and as troubling as that was for Jesus, his final, when his appeal to the world to behold his love would be most amplified is at this point where the the glory of God would be seen at once. Where? At the cross. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him, If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. The cross, friends, is the glory of Christ because in love he offers himself as a sacrifice in the place of those who did not deserve his love. And we are to love as he has loved. And we are to be, even as we were thinking about this morning, a visible authentication of Christ's love. The display cabinet that shows forth God is love. This is how Jesus loves. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's not a new command in one sense, loving one another. We've heard about that from the book of Leviticus. It's an old command, but this is, this is new. Love as Jesus has loved us. Makes himself the one to imitate. Puts himself at the very center of it all. Except to say, look at me, see who I am, and love as I have loved. Don Carson says it's simple enough for a toddler to memorize, but profound enough for the most mature believers that they are embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and indeed put it into practice. It's a challenge, isn't it? To love like Jesus loved? To behave like this to, and act like this in love towards enemies? Those who betray us, those who hurt us? live sacrificially that we will wash feet and prepare one another for the difficulties that we face in life so that we might be a stabilizing work in one another's life such as our love it's a tough call but it's what we are called to because to love like Jesus is to love inclusively even to the point of loving our enemies to love like Jesus is to love selflessly even to the point of sacrificing once for another and to love like Jesus is to show favor to those who do not deserve it. So church, this is what is before us 
as a command. This is what we will delve more deeply into in John chapter 14, where we hear the repeated call to love one another. We should be praying indeed that we will follow his example and so display his goodness, his glory to the world, knowing that by this all men will know that you are his disciples if we love one another. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that tonight, if there are any among us who are practicing a mere religious formalism, receiving from the hand of Jesus many different things, but never truly receiving Jesus himself, that you would help them to see the depths of his love. The to see how far he will go to demonstrate that love, even to a cross and to a painful death, even to the point of bearing the wrath of the Father on himself. And upon seeing those things, may they truly receive you, Jesus. And as we, as the church, behold your great love, for your disciples, even for Judas, your, who was an enemy, may we truly imitate you and make your love the very mark of our lives by your grace and with your Spirit's help. This is too much for us to do on our own. We are wholly dependent on you. Let us love with the love that you have shown us with a love that you have given us through your spirit and let many men and women and children come to know you when they look at us and see you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.